Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is the Jim Rutt Show. Today's guest is Trent McConaughey. Hi, Jim. Great to be here. I've been fortunate enough to know and have worked with Trent since, what was it, like 2001? Something like that, yeah. Trent, along with a group of his friends, started a uh, computer chip design software company called Analog Design Automation. Somehow I got connected up with them and liked what I saw, both the guys and the idea, and I became an investor and the non-executive chairman of the company. The company was successful and was sold to Synopsys in uh, 2004, 2005, something like that. Trent's next venture was Solito Design Automation, another computer chip design software company, this time working on a different problem in the... Uh, you know, chip design space, in this case, uh, manufacturability. Again, Trent was the CTO. And again, the company was successfully sold to an acquirer, Siemens this time. Two very hardcore startups, two successful exits. Trent, you could have done anything you wanted. You decided to do your next venture in the domains of blockchains, public ledgers, smart contracts, decentralized autonomous organizations and such. Why? That's a great question. I think overall, I've always been attracted to technology where I see there, that there can be a very big leverage point. And, you know, with my first two startups, um, it was certainly in the domain of AI, which is a very big lever. You know, even back in the 90s, um, some people saw that. I was fortunate enough to see it and um, started applying it. Even with the second startup, it was AI to really help drive Moore's Law, which, of course, can influence the world in a really positive way. So in about 2013, 2014, I really started to see the um, the potentials for blockchain and um, not just, you know, the Bitcoin side, the money side, which, you know, I've been tracking for a while, but what else you could do. And that led me down a path of playing with the technology and um, talking with more and more people. And eventually it kind of captured my imagination so much that myself and a team of people around me, uh, we started building something that we thought could make a big difference and uh, never looked back. Uh, interestingly, in the last uh, two or three years, uh, I've managed to close the loop and pull AI back into the loop. So it's AI and blockchain now. Um, but yeah, it's overall, it's really about working with technologies that can have a big lever to help improve society and humanity. Exactly. Because I, uh, I know you've always been interested, not just in the technical problem, but what it kind of impact it could have on the world. Uh, what impact do you see from this collection of technologies for the, literally the future of humanity? Open it up. Big picture. For sure. My pleasure. So in, in a nutshell, I see that blockchains are incentive machines. So you can use them to help to guide um, people's behavior towards things that can be uh, beneficial for society. And, and maybe just as a bit of background to unpack that a bit, um, let's think about what Bitcoin is for a second. Um, Bitcoin, there's a whole bunch of people running miners, miners, miners. And every 10 minutes, someone gets some Bitcoin tokens, 12.5 Bitcoin tokens. And their chance of getting it is proportional to how much security they're adding to the Bitcoin network. So in a sense, Bitcoin itself has an objective function. It's trying to maximize its security, uh, which it's defined as hash rate um, and so on. So upon realizing that, that basically at the heart of Bitcoin, it's it's essentially an optimizer that's getting humans uh, to contribute to help it achieve its objective function. After realizing that, um, that's what led me to asking, uh, what else can you do? You know, what other objective functions can you come up with and um, codify into blockchain systems that are really acting as public utility networks, sort of like, you know, the internet and the World Wide Web and all these, they're sort of civilization infrastructure. And so uh, that's really, you know, the most powerful way to think about blockchain technologies. And maybe just as another sort of complementary frame 
framing. Traditionally, to get incentives, um, you know, there's a wonderful book called How Nations Fail, and it talks about it starts with the values of the politicians and the leaders, which they manifest in. Uh, economic institutions and those econ- economic institutions are then used to infuse objective functions at the level of uh, individuals and so on. So th- these institutions are laws and governments and otherwise. And then at the, the final level, it's really about making it possible for people to start companies and build and so on. So traditionally, this has been manifested via governments and um, I'm all for governments that are, you know, well run and um, not corrupt and, and all that. But um, what's cool is there's now another way to do it where you can manifest um, economic institutions, i.e. blockchain technologies, as public infrastructure. And then um, these will have their own incentives uh, baked in that can help guide society forward in a positive way. Well, of course, we're seeing that nation-state type governments also do want to have a say, at least to some degree, about what happens in this space. How do you see that working out? Well, I, I think if you think about the, the idea of government itself, it's really um, supposed to be by the people, for the people. And if you think about even you know the founding of the USA, where you have um, Ben Franklin and Jefferson and Adams sitting around the table designing the Constitution and the other documents, they were really thinking about you know how do we come up with uh, a mechanism that can help to create a society where things are positive and can be building forward and so on. Like in some of your other podcasts, sort of um, describing, I think it was with Jordan, you know, some democracies in there, some liberalism, some capitalism, and all that stitched together in a new way. And so governments can provide uh, a set of rules by which once everyone understands the rules, they can interact according to that. So it doesn't need to get reinvented, reinvented. Another role that governments play, especially after income tax was introduced in a big way, is to take in uh, a lot of income and then... Um, use this to give a social safety net. So things like uh, Medicare in Canada or even road infrastructure and so on. So we can think of these as uh, common shared resource pools, um, i.e. commons. So the governments have played a role for a long, long time in helping to give commons to the public um, and organizing all of that. So all the different institutions are, in a sense, the commons, and that's a role that the government has played. Um, I think that's still useful going forward, but I see that what blockchains can do uh, bit by bit is provide new ways of providing commons, um, sometimes taking in resources and, and providing that to the people. And in some places where traditionally the only way to do it was with an institution that might have had 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 individuals to sort of um, organize this commons, now you can have it where it's essentially this autonomous robot, this network um, that has state to do it instead so you can actually make society a lot more efficient. So what blockchains are, in my view, uh, it's not against the government. It's actually beneficial in achieving complementary aims, just like government have traditionally aimed for, but doing it in a way that is um, much a lower uh, friction, much lower cost, and can help humanity just run in a more, not only more efficient way, but can help steer us towards self-actualization in the end. Yeah, we may also be able to have our nation-state governments learn to be good users of these tools, it strikes me. For sure, yeah. And, um, you know, so, some um, have come along farther than others. Um, and in a sense right now, you know, some are learning faster than others and understanding the benefits sooner and seeing how they, they can help their citizens. Um, there's a lot of use cases, you know, out there, not just related to, you know, value transfer, uh, remittance, all that sort of thing, but also, um, you know, where we started out was in, in the domain of IP and helping artists, you know, creators of, of digital art and so on, helping them to get compensated. And a lot of these things, uh, you know, were, are too expensive for the government to do a good job uh, just because it costs too much. But if you actually have these blockchain systems, then it can help roll out things like that that are beneficial to all. So, you know, more transparent government, if governments truly want that, then it's, it's very straightforward to do. Um, it's pretty rare for that to happen, though, unless 
unless you have uh, a government with essentially zero corruption or negligible corruption, even if you have a tiny fraction of corruption, it's very, very hard to, to instill transparency into a government. Yeah, the governments may not want transaction, but I'll be tell you the citizens sure the shit do, right? So if we can educate our citizenry that uh, it's possible to wire up many parts of government to be radically and unhackably transparent, while the government people themselves may not want that, uh, it may well be the basis for a, a, a political movement at some point. For sure. And, you know, um, and the way that I see, um, technologies, sort of these general purpose technologies like AI or blockchain, um, you can't help but have, like, they almost by definition, um, have an ethical element that, of course, then relates to how governments have to think about things and so on too. So every line of code almost that you write in AI or in blockchain might have an ethical, um, judgment in it, right? You know, even with your, your days with DNS, there was ethical judgment calls that got made that led to, you know, these days, you know, how I can works, et cetera, right? But back in the day, that was just um, judgment calls. Yep, go look at Lawrence Lessig's famous book, Code, right? That in some sense, code is the law of the internet. And uh, as your very good point that every time anyone creates, especially fundamental code for networks, uh, AI, or this new public ledger platform technology, we are essentially making lawful distinctions, which are important. And it would certainly be good, it seems to me, if uh, technologists became better educated about ethics. Absolutely. And, you know, I often hear that there's sort of rhetoric that they aren't, but um, I studied uh, engineering in, in Canada and there was a class that was part of the engineering curriculum, which is engineering ethics. Every engineer had to take it. If you graduate as an engineer in Canada, you have you get an iron ring, this ring that you wear around your pinky. It used to be iron. Now it's made out of stainless steel, probably because it's less damaging to your skin or on your finger. But, um, uh, you know, there's actually a tradition uh, in engineering, which is, you know, a big chunk of technology professional for ethics. And I know that that's had a profound influence on me um, going back to my days of engineering and then also studying a lot of philosophy and psychology and whatnot. So it can be in the curriculum. And of course, in the field where things are profoundly influential, like AI and blockchain, in my experience, a good chunk of those people do think about these a lot, right? So it's not, you know, in, in AI, there's all sorts of issues that are popping up and ones that have people have been aware of for a long time and people are trying to do something about it. Same thing with blockchain, right? And sometimes I spend time just trying to raise awareness of new things that we hadn't thought of before, too, that we should try to account for if we can. Yeah, I think uh, you're right that many practitioners are very sensitive to ethics. Of course, the problem is it doesn't take very many who aren't to cause a problem. So we shall see. Let's move on to another topic. Trent knows I'm always a zealot about performance and throughput in software. How many times did I pound the table, you know, at ADA and say, God damn it, this didn't fast enough, right? And that I constantly have bitched about the ridiculously low transaction rates of most of today's blockchain systems. I hope some of that nudging uh, may have pushed you towards uh, one of your first big scientific discoveries in the blockchain space, uh, which was the DCS triangle, uh, where you showed that blockchains can't have all three of decentralization, consensus, and scale. Uh, tell us a little bit about what drove you to that thinking and try to explain to our smart but not necessarily blockchain literate uh, audience uh, what the DCS triangle means. 
In general, it, it points to um, an engineering trade-off, actually not a fundamental trade-off, but simply an engineering trade-off among these three um, sort of characteristics that you want. And how I arrived at it was looking around at the time, it was about uh, 2015, maybe early 2016, and we had built our initial system, this um, you know uh, IP in the blockchain system on, on Bitcoin under the hood, and we ran into major issues of, of throughput and scale. Uh, I think I gave a, t- a talk on it in fall of 2014, um, long before you know most others noticed because we were just so early. And so that led us to be building another blockchain system, uh, which essentially is decentralizing MongoDB. We called it BigchainDB. And it leveraged the really great work that had been done to um, make MongoDB scale. And we actually initially had built on RethinkDB, which also has a lot of scale. And RethinkDB, MongoDB, these are all distributed database systems, which means that they get their performance, their throughput, all this by spreading the, the compute load and the, and the storage load across many, many, many um, cheap servers. They still have a single point of control, so they are centralized, but the, the resources are spread. And that's really the difference between distributed and decentralized. Distributed means spreading the compute resources on many machines. Decentralized means no single point of failure. So we built BigchainDB, improved and improved it over a number of years, and um, it was targeted as a scalable uh, blockchain database. And to this day, it's it's running in a very nice piece of technology. I'm very proud of it and what um, my team and I had, had ro- ro- rolled out. And um, some people would complain, though, because they, they said, okay, well, it's scalable. We'll see that. Great. It's consistent, which means that uh, the transactions that go through are reliably there. You don't have an issue with the double spend problem. Double spend, you know, basically uh, is the idea... If I have a Bitcoin and I send that Bitcoin to you and I send it also uh, to my wife, then um, the system should say, no, 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 you can't do that. Or at least the Bitcoin only ends up in either your wallet or my wife's wallet. Um, and that's the double spend problem. And that's a very nice heuristic to see whether or not you have enough consistency in a pragmatic way. So we've talked about scale. Basically, can you have something that can serve the capabilities of the planet, you know, that can go to a scale of a, of a Google or a Facebook? Can you be consistent, i.e. prevent double spend? And the final thing is, um, can you be decentralized? And in, in the sense of decentralized, you know, the definition I gave before, no single point of failure, but you can um, put this on, um, you can have more extreme versions and less extreme versions. The more extreme version, the ideal version is where it is permissionless. And what that means is, uh, anyone running a node that could potentially say that the transactions are going through or not, um, they don't need to have any permission to run that node. They just took it to the network and they're running. And that's a permissionless system. You also want to be censorship resistant because, um, um, if you're not censorship resistant, then along comes badly acting um, governments, etc., that will try to block things. So that, that's the ideal, is that you're permissionless and censorship resistant. But um, a step along the way on this axis, you can start off with centralized control, and a step along the way is where you have a federated setup, where there's maybe 10 or 20 essentially authority nodes. So uh, together, it's a, it's a group of actors that together are decentralized. There's no single point of failure, but there's you know only 10 or 20 of them. So to compromise them, uh, uh, you need, you know, if you, if one or two or a handful are compromised, then um, you're still okay. But um, if you've got more than half compromised, you're in rough shape. And depending on the algorithm, maybe it's one third, maybe it's two thirds, and so on. So that's the idea of centralized. Um, in BigchainDB, we actually compromised on the decentralized side. We just had a federation of you know 20 nodes, 50 nodes. So we had scale and we had consistency, preventing double spend, but we were not permissionless. We would have loved to be permissionless. The technology just did not exist at the time. Uh, and there was other systems though, Bitcoin and Ethereum. They uh, were fully permissionless, so you didn't need permission to be running a validator node. And 
um, they were consistent. They solved the double spend problem, but they were not scalable, right? Bitcoin was topping out at 10 transactions per second and the, each transaction was costing 10 cents. So that, you know, was not pointed to global scale. Ethereum, similar issues, a little bit better, but not a lot better. And then finally, on the th- a third example is um, inside IPFS, which is sort of like this modern file system meets the World Wide Web. The World Wide Web protocols are really protocols for the sort of like giant document in the sky. Or an, you can also think of it as, um, you know, a layer on top of the, the core TCP IP protocols that allow you to just download documents, see documents and so on. But if a link is removed, then you don't know and you just end up with dead links over time. And you, if, if uh, the data in a link has changed, um, then you don't know if it's been changed or not. So someone could be changing the information sort of under your feet and you wouldn't know. There's no sort of uh, integrity checks built in. And uh, so there's the system called IPFS, Interplanetary File System, that has basically taken these ideas from the World Wide Web Protocol, linked in new ideas with digital signatures and integrity checking, and um, basically created new protocols also for serving up data in the same way as the web, but where you just have much better integrity guarantees. So it turns out that under the hood, it's very, very scalable, um, you know, way more scalable than Bitcoin or Ethereum to the level of scale of the, of the whole uh, internet, which is very nice. It also is permissionless. You can be running um, IPFS technology without uh, asking permission as part of the overall IPFS network. But what it doesn't solve is it does not solve the double spend problem. It has some degree of consistency using a pretty new cool technology called CRDTs, conflict-free resolution data types. I'll just say CRDTs. <laughs> and uh, overall, though, um, it doesn't prevent double spend. So here we have three different um, technologies, Bitcoin and Ethereum on one side, BigChainDB on another side, uh, IPFS on another side, and each one of those technologies only solves two of the three. And that's the DCS triangle that, they, that I observed. And sort of what's cool is in the... Um, one or one year after that, one and a half years, there's at least two other people that um, sort of independently discovered it and then realized that I had written about it before and then started referencing my work, which is pretty cool. It is not a fundamental law, though. So it turns out that it was an engineering observation. Trade-offs exist all the time. But sometimes uh, if you're sneaky about it, you can bypass all of the issues. And so what we've seen is in the last couple of years, there's, there's been a lot of proposals to scale in various ways. And now these proposals are starting to get deployed as um, technologies and the networks are just beginning to start to get out there and will be maturing in coming years. So V2 of Ethereum has a technology that um, has consistency and fully permissionless decentralization with scale, as well as many others, you know, Polkadot, Definity, Algorand, all of these. So that's quite exciting. Um, and I even wrote about that in my initial article, that it was just an engineering observation. And in the end, you know, it's getting solved, which is, which is great. Are we sure it's going to get solved? You know, uh, I've been hearing about these alleged speed ups of the radically trustless networks for years now, and nothing ever happens. You know, they maybe get a factor of two. Well, actually, uh, I'm hopeful, and, and, and here's why. So there's a, a few different tricks you can do. One of them is simply, if you want to have consistency with traditional approaches to technology, um, you um, use algorithms um, in the vein of BFT, Byzantine Fault Tolerant, which means you can have you know, a good chunk of bad actors, Byzantine actors, um, attacking things and you're still okay. And algorithms that follow these sort of BFT protocols, um, they scale very badly with a number of, of actors. So they can only go up to about 100, 125 actors because the bandwidth, um, balloons. It's the bandwidth usage is a square of the number of actors. So, um, th- then that makes you limited to, you know, 100 actors in a federation or whatever. But one of the tricks that people are using is basically random beacons. So you, you maybe you have 10,000 possible validators. But every, say, 24 hours, it randomly picks 100 of them. 
And that's basically enough time that, you know, they won't have time to collude and form a cartel or something, but you still have, uh, you overcome this engineering limitation of, of the bandwidth exploding. So that's one very nice example. Another example basically is to, to shard and have lots and lots of blockchains that can talk to each other. And probably the, the most two prominent projects in that direction would be, um, Cosmos and Polkadot. And, you know, you can have basically various chains. Each chain is dedicated to a particular, um, niche or space. So th- these are two example technologies that are coming along nicely and they do have the, the benchmarks to back them up. They're starting to roll out and I'm quite um, hopeful for it. That's good. I, though I must say, I still wonder whether trustlessness is worth the cost, right? It's almost a religious issue with a, a lot of people in the blockchain world that we have to have this, you know, radical trustlessness, uncensorability, etc. cetera. Uh, and, you know, in the current systems, it, re- it results in, you know, crazy costs. You know, Bitcoin network costs something on the order of 5% of its market cap to operate each year. By the time you count uh, mining and transactions, that's nuts. You know, even something as grossly inefficient as the U.S. banking system uh, gets by on something less than 1%. Well, I actually think like, so So Bitcoin, um, you know, was the first and it actually addressed the, this problem of, um, you know, solving the double spend problem in a completely new way. Um, it was really, truly an advance in computer science sense, but it, it was grossly inefficient. It remains grossly inefficient. Um, but, you know, network effects have taken over and people are very hesitant to, to change it in any real way because it kind of opens up a whole can of worms. Uh, ho- however, um, these other new technologies I'm talking about, they don't use massive electricity costs. They don't use massive resources. They're um, getting to sort of within the same order of magnitude uh, of cost of running as traditional distributed systems. So that is very hopeful. Um, you know, you don't have to do massive work burning electricity to do them. You have instead you do things like proof of stake where you're staking that um, you're going to do X or Y or Z. And if you don't follow through with that, then um, people can take your stake, slash your stake. So it is actually quite promising and hopeful um, that way. And I think all of this will come to bear in the in the next two or three years. Um, and these technologies, you know, some of these networks are rolling out as we speak. That would be a good thing. I, I have remained questioning about where the world has gone with this relentless uh, libido for trustlessness. But if we can break the DCS triangle, uh, then... Uh, it'd be great to have. Tr- trustlessness would be great to have if it weren't too expensive. I think there's there's room for shades of gray. There are places where it makes sense to have a federated chain, you know, like internal, for example, internal data sharing within an enterprise. Maybe it's a multinational enterprise and they just want to have, they don't want to be um, lose all their data if there's just one hack in one place, right? So if they're, each office is running a couple nodes, then maybe you have to actually take hack two or three offices to really get to it. Whereas right now, all you need to do is compromise one place, right? I like to think of it as a security model as the following, um, the traditional security model is M&M. So you've got this uh, yummy chocolate on the inside and a hard shell. But if you manage to pierce any bit of that shell, then you get to get in and eat, eat all the yummy chocolate. And blockchain flips that on its head where it, now you've got basically got this super rock hard nut at the center, which is simply the list of transactions. And then around it, you've got, you know, lots of yummy chocolate that's maybe hard, maybe not, um, things like the exchanges and different things. And they can get hacked now and then, but that doesn't compromise the integrity of the core system. But it's really, really hard to compromise the integrity of the core system because there can be, there's 10,000 copies uh, of that ledger all around the world, right? So that's very useful. I also see going back, you know, I, I mentioned these federations uh, internally, you can have shades of gray, right? Some chains make 
sense to have KYC or AML. Other chains make sense to be fully trustless. And uh, the trustless is actually, you know, Nick Zabel wrote this wonderful, wonderful essay about social scalability, getting past Dunbar's number, which I know you like to talk about, of 150 people. So how do you sort of coordinate humans on a much larger scale without resorting to um, massive hierarchies and whatnot? And um, if you think about it, Bitcoin has managed to convince tens of thousands of people to work together towards a common objective function simply by virtue of aligning the interests of, of Bitcoin, you know, this objective function. And same thing with the work we're doing in Ocean, right? Ocean is trying to maximize the supply of data that, that is relevant. And there's many, many more like this. So um, it's all shades of gray. Yeah, that's good. That's really good. I, I love those uh, thoughts, actually. The idea that, uh, in some sense, uh, blockchain reverses the security model and leaves you at the core with, as far as we know, an unhackable actual database, while the stuff above may be soft, the reverse of the traditional corporate security model. I'm going to move on to the next topic. And uh, again, try to keep the exposition as non-technical, jargon-free and acronym-free as you can. Something that people are interested in but don't understand in the slightest is uh, what are smart contracts? To my mind, it's perhaps the next most powerful concept beyond the blockchain itself uh, that's happened in the blockchain epoch. Uh, Could you tell us about uh, what smart contracts are and why they are important? Sure. So it's simply a code that is running on decentralized substrate. So traditionally, you know, like if you go to a website, you're going to be interacting with it, say Amazon.com, and that code is running on Amazon servers. And, you know, if Jeff Bezos pulls the plug, then you can't talk to Amazon.com anymore, right? So there's a single point of of control. Or with banking too, right? There's code um, um, that runs for your local bank and that particular code even um, knows what your bank account balance is and um, if the bank goes broke well you know maybe you've got some trouble or if there's a hack there's trouble and so on so this is you know just traditional code running on traditional centralized systems Um, what smart contracts are is code that is running on this decentralized substrate and once again think of it like a public utility um, that's just out there just like we have the public utility of electricity and roads and and even, you know, going backwards more, air as a public utility, you know, the soil that we stand on, all of these things are public utilities. And now, though, we have a public utility where you can run code and you don't really care where it's running on. And it's just there. So you can put some code out there. Um, it's running and you can um, rely on it running to execute things. So and that's basically smart contracts. So um, you can write this this code, call it a smart contract, um, deploy it to Ethereum or some other network, and it can be doing things for you. So some, what are some of the things? Um, well, as a baseline, it can store a balance of some tokens you have, maybe a token that you have that represents Bitcoin or, uh, or Ether tokens or Ocean tokens. You can have inside the sort of smart contract, you, you control it. You can be having access to data sets or IP or otherwise, but then you can start building on top of it too. So there's this whole, um, you know, something that's near term that's emerging is decentralized finance. So um, now you can have um, peer-to-peer loans where some people are um, putting up some of their holdings as collateral. Other people are borrowing that. So there's basically borrowers and lenders and the borrowers are getting interest. So the lenders are, sorry, the borrowers are paying interest. The lenders are getting interest and 
that actually um, takes over what traditionally has been a, a function inside banks. But now it's running on this uh, decentralized substrate that is way more secure and has way lower cost uh, of running compared to you know all the humans and all the electricity and all the other code uh, and these traditional banks. So it's sort of much more socially scalable that way. And you know it started with this very simple baseline in, in the de- decentralized finance space, the decentralized baseline of loans and all this. But now there's starting to be more and more extensions that are going to get more and more interesting and exotic over time. You know, with things like insurance, things like collateralized debt in fancier ways, and um, you know, we'll see the emergence of mortgages around this and everything else, right? So, from a consumer perspective, it can be as simple as uh, okay, now instead of having zero percent or one percent interest in my bank account, you could have a, you know five percent or fifteen percent depending on on what your the collateral is that you're loaning out uh, or whatever it is you're storing, right? But it's going to get a lot more interesting. Um, continue to get interesting in, in coming months and years. And that's just one example. But beyond, I really see that these smart contracts, just like, you know, there's the, the famous Mark Andreessen quote, software is eating the world. Well, um, now the software that is sort of eating the world is software that is running on this public utility infrastructure and you can get it to do amazing stuff. So, you know, what excites me is things like AI software running on this decentralized substrate. Uh, it completely changes the rules of interacting with an AI. You know, it's AIs that, you know, they can be their own agents. They can have their own resources. They can own stuff. Um, they can accumulate resources um, and you can really run with this. As you know, uh, my friend Ben Gersel was on the uh, Jim Rutt show six or seven weeks ago. We talked quite a bit about his Singularity Net project, which tries to do just that. So the next part of educating our audience a little bit before we jump into your ocean protocol, it'd be real helpful if you could describe it about a similar level of abstraction, uh, the concept of a decentralized autonomous organization, sometimes known as a DAO. I guess some of your crowd, or maybe a fair bit, is people from the complexity science space. After your introduction, I um, had a call with David Krakauer, who runs uh, Santa Fe Institute. And he asked me, you know, tell me, you know, what, what is the, the, the hook for DAOs or blockchain for me? And, you know, he comes from the artificial life space. So I said, it's a life form. And it's true. Right. DAOs are a new form of life. And it wasn't me to first conceive of that. Um, to my knowledge, the first time that I saw it was uh, with Ralph Merkel talking about it in a, in a paper he wrote in 2016. Um, you know, Ralph Merkel, famous for the nanotech. And before that, he actually did some really great cryptography in the 70s, famously uh, created the idea of the Merkel tree as sort of a, a data structure with some nice integrity guarantees. But uh, so uh, DAOs are a new form of life. So Bitcoin itself is a DAO. Basically, it's this organism that's out there that it's, it's really hard to kill. Um, it, it has many, many copies. It somehow convinced humans to let it keep running uh, on machines that humans have given it. And um, it has properties of resilience. Um, it's also anti-fragile. So um, it's been hacked, or people have tried to hack it several times. But every time people try to hack it, other people come in and fix any potential um, bugs. So the last major bug that was in Bitcoin, to my knowledge, was a transaction malleability bug in 2013. And uh, other, you know, that got fixed. And uh, to my knowledge, there have, haven't been any major hacks to Bitcoin at all. And b- 2013 and before, um, it was so young and uh, so under the radar that no one really, n- nothing really bad 
happened to Bitcoin. So that's an example. Um, another, you know, and any of these sort of permissionless blockchains out there are DAOs. So Ethereum is a DAO, et cetera, et cetera. But what's cool, you don't need to run your own chain to have a DAO. You could simply run a smart contract on top where the control is uh, more autonomous. So um, you, you can put out a smart contract where you can't change it once it's put out there. And um, if it's doing things in sort of a, an autonomous fashion, then it's a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization. Another way to think about it is it's maybe perhaps the next corporation. So corporations, you know, they've been around a few hundred years, first came out of the Netherlands and then a little bit England. And they kind of, you know, they accumulated personhood um, over the years so that they have legal rights and, and so on. So they're kind of these autonomous organizations powered by humans that have their own legal rights and are used to help, um, you know, pool capital together to accomplish things that maybe a single human can't do. Right. Well, DAOs are kind of like that, too, except they don't necessarily need any sort of corporate or legal structure. They're just simply running on Ethereum or whatever. And um, but they can be used to pool together resources. You know, there's this project uh, three years ago called The DAO, which was basically um, targeting it. Literally, people pooled together $150 million worth of resources. And it was going to be sort of this uh, fund that was going to invest in, in other projects. Um, it happened to have a smart contract flaw. So um, that, that project got wound down in a not so gentle way. <laughs> but that was a, you know, a really cool visionary idea. And there's a lot of other DAOs. So there's even projects that make it easy to construct DAOs for organizing humans in whatever way. So maybe whereas before you might have started a company to do something or maybe a co-op, now you can create a DAO. And these DAOs, they can be shaped like companies, uh, sort of hierarchically if you want with people or like co-ops. Um, but you have way uh, a much broader design space uh, of sort of organizing people. So there's a lot more flexibility in how you implement government governance in you know, how decisions are made, how resources are allocated and all of that. So I, I see it as a, a ratchet up in technology for organizing humans and bots. You mentioned that corporations have legal rights of quasi-personhood, probably too damn much in my opinion, but some of it's necessary. Uh, is it fair to say that a DAO has uh, sort of analogous rights, but the rights are in terms of rights to enter transactions into a smart contract and or public ledger system and that that is actually their leverage? Yeah. So um, basically, for example, if you create a, um, a DAO, a smart contract running on Ethereum, it itself can have its own resources out of the box, its own uh, essentially private keys, all of this sort of thing to hold hold its own um, tokens, have its own wallet, and so on. And and with that, then it can transact with you know other agents running the system, other DAOs, other um, blockchains, even external things in the real world. So uh, absolutely yes. Well, that uh, provides a great base, I think, for our audience. Now let's turn to your most recent project, which is uh, still going strong, uh, which is the Ocean Protocol. It uses many ideas from the blockchain space that we've talked about. Tell us about the Ocean Protocol. What we're trying to do is catalyze a new data economy, one that is open and permissionless. And I guess by analogy, in the world of blockchain, blockchain started out where they were on the heels of the financial crisis in 2008, where there was this economy, the money economy that was closed and opaque. And, um, you know, the decisions were made by a small handful of people. And Bitcoin sort of was sparked by that and was released and has been unlocking this um, open, permissionless, uh, more transparent uh, money economy. 
now, if you look at, you know, World Bank figures and stuff, something like 25% of the GDP of the future will be based on data. And that's very soon, like by 2025 or something. And even now, a huge part of the world is running on data in, in bigger and bigger ways every day. And we see influences around all the time, but influences that are kind of negative. So things like um, large corporations like Facebook um, and Google, they've accumulated a, a vast amount of wealth because they figured out how to leverage data and convert that data into value using AI and then accumulate wealth that way. And so um, what what we have then now is essentially we have a data economy, but it is closed and opaque and controlled by just a small handful of players for the vast majority of data. This is very dangerous for society. You know, we shouldn't have to rely on Facebook improving its algorithms just so that we that America has a democratic election, for example, or or, or Britain have has a democratic referendum. Uh, instead, uh, what we really should have is a substrate for data flowing around that is is a public utility that um, makes it really straightforward for data to flow from A to B to C to D without these middlemen that could be compromised that definitely have the wrong incentives. You know, Facebook is a for-profit company. At the end of the day, they have their fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders. What's their objective function? Make more money. How do they make more money? Sell more ads. How do they sell more ads? By basically data mining you to target you as best as you can. So Facebook is incentivized to get all of your data um, and, and to basically sell it back to you in the form of ads. Um, Google is no different, although they managed to veil it a little bit more. <laughs> so, and those are probably, you know, the best examples, Google, Facebook, these sorts of guys. And there's actually not that many companies like that. Most of the Fortune 500 companies out there, they kind of have this idea that they know they have lots of data, but they haven't been able to convert that to value with with AI and so on. And on the flip side, there's a lot of AI folks out there um, who have a lot of AI expertise, but don't have access to a lot of data or the resources to really turn it into value. And this is why, you know, it's only these organizations that have huge amounts of data and huge amounts of, of AI expertise and related compute um, that they're extracting the value. This is super dangerous for society and not the sort of future world that I want to live in. So as I was realizing this, I guess I should mention the reason AI and data are related, you know, starting in the mid 2000s, AI researchers started to realize if you want to have a more accurate AI model, then you add more data. And, uh, you know, the traditional way was, you know, get, get a PhD to spend four years improving the algorithm. But the new discovery was basically, okay, just add 10x more data, add 100x or 1000x more data. And your error can go from 20% to 10% to 5% to 1% to 0.1%. And so it's actually kind of embarrassing to AI researchers because, you know, you no longer need to justify a PhD. You just need to spend, you know, a bunch of money and go and buy data. And this is why, you know, um, Google, for example, buys satellite imaging companies and so on so they can get more data. So the name of the game is data for AI. Anyway, so th this is kind of the, the, the landscape that we're in, where um, we have this opaque, closed uh, data economy. And I started asking the question, how do we have an open, permissionless data economy where you can, where there's in incentives for um, commons public data, as well as means for people to, to leverage their private data to transact it if they want, but giving sort of shades of gray of privacy, because it needs to reconcile privacy. So, so that's kind of the goal of Ocean. And um, what we've designed is something that manifests that. So Ocean, we um, see it as the substrate for uh, data economy. And how it's designed, it's designed to unlock data in three ways, all in ways that basically overall then equalize access to data 
which in turn equalizes opportunities for AI, um, spreading the potential benefits out to everyone. But it's really about equalizing opportunities, you know, benefits we can't control. It's really up to the people themselves to, to, to use it. And we unlock data in three quick ways by making it easy to uh, build marketplaces and have um, permissioning uh, on data with fine control, by bringing compute to the data itself, which allows people to um, get value from private data without um, losing control of it or without compromising privacy. And finally, just like Bitcoin has this objective function to maximize its security, where it pays Bitcoin tokens if people contribute to the security. Ocean has an objective function to maximize the supply of relevant data. And um, by doing that, basically, it pays tokens from the Ocean network to people who supply data, uh, relevant data. So that's what Ocean is in a nutshell. It's, it's super opinionated um, in, in a way where we think it's really important. It's super opinionated, basically trying to create this public utility network for the benefit of society. Could you give an, uh, a tangible example of what maybe two different examples, one uh, for a data owner uh, who may want to put their data out on the ocean network and the second for a, say, a pool of AI talent that might want to use the ocean network to get access to data? Absolutely. So um, one of the examples we started with and we are continuing down this path is Toyota Research Institute came to us saying, okay, we're, um, we're working on autonomous vehicles and we've run the numbers and we see that we need 500 billion miles driven in order to get accurate enough cars, cars that won't crash. And uh, we've run the numbers and it's going to take us towards a couple decades to get that on our own. And that's accounting for exponentials and everything. And they said, uh, we would love to find a way where we can um, share and buy and sell autonomous driving data with the other automakers so that together we can um, get accurate enough cars and then it's a win-win for everybody. So um, we actually built a prototype for them. It worked nicely, but they saw that it, you know, Toyota itself um, wouldn't be able to roll that out further on its own simply because it really needs to be as an industry consortium. So the person behind the project in Toyota, Chris Ballinger, he then left Toyota and created a, um, a foundation called Mobi, which is a uh, mobility open blockchain initiative. And within Mobi, um, one of the key initiatives there is this autonomous uh, vehicles data exchange. And basically that is sort of a win-win across the board for the automakers, as well as for you know your grandma or whoever who gets autonomous vehicles sooner because then they get better mobility options. And finally, for anyone who rides a car, because as soon as autonomous vehicles get accurate enough to be as accurate as humans, as safe as humans, a minute later, they're more accurate, right? And that's going to be beneficial. So, you know, if we fast forward 20, 30 years, people will be shocked that humans ever drove cars at all, given how dangerous it can be. So that's one example. And, uh, you know, I see it as uh, quite a promising thing. It's continuing down the path. Let me drill into that one a little bit. I like that example. So I'll try to restate it. Tell me if I get the restatement wrong for our audience. Uh, the idea is this Moby Foundation would encourage all the or most of the major players trying to build autonomous vehicles to pool their experiential data into a common database or at least into a federated database where all of them could have access to each other's data for doing uh, analysis, uh, you know, replays, simulation, etc. Is that approximately what uh, what's proposed here? So the data actually can stay on premise inside Toyota, inside um, Daimler, etc. And Ocean acts as this this uh, access control layer, um, where basically, if I'm an engineer in BMW, I can access the data in all these other automotive um, suppliers of the data without actually having to download that data to my my own silo, if you will, right? And then I can even be training models across these different silos eventually, right? So you can do, you know. Um, business intelligence across silos, you can train AI models across silos. Um, but the net benefit is as if you had pooled all the data into one big pool. 
from Toyota's perspective. Now, uh, it sounds like you have a mechanism to allow computation to run at Toyota on Toyota's data without that computation having access to the lowest levels of the data, at least in a way that the data could be, say, stolen by GM or Mercedes. Yeah, and this is a sort of a key thing that Ocean is building. When we started out the project, we uh, just said, okay, you know, if you want to buy the data, if you want to use it, then you have to download it. And of course, um, we ran into this challenge very quickly. Well, what about data that is personally identifiable or really, really valuable, right? And the most valuable data is private data. What about that data? And we explored various schemes, right? And there's a bunch of um, schemes emerging in sort of crypto space, things like homomorphic encryption, which is computation on encrypted data. Um, or multi-party compute, which is um, having many different parties, each computing just a tiny chunk of the compute and then trying to merge the results together. And those are all really great techniques, but they're not quite ready for prime time. They're getting there, but it's still, you know, two, three, four years away. And even if you do have those, if you're a big enterprise, these techniques are kind of asking you to still put your data out there in the wild and hope that the cryptography keeps you safe. It's much more secure feeling if you know that your data isn't leaving um, beyond your firewall. So how, how do you address that? And the answer is bring the compute to the data itself, right? And let the, let the algorithms um, get train these models um, behind the firewall. And, and then um, the final model can either stay behind the firewall or it could be released as well. Although if you release it, you have to be very careful about people reverse engineering it. So the safest way is to have it stay behind the firewall or stay in a decentralized fashion where you've got some limits on how many queries people can have. Otherwise, it, they get reverse engineered. So you kind of basically have to think about all the levels of the stack, right? Like where does the data go to? What are all the different attack vectors of how people might try to grab the, the, the private data and then come up with a system that addresses that and at the same time accounts for the pragmatics of technology that's available today or what's just that thing that's like one step away. So in Ocean, we've, we've used as much off-the-shelf technology as we can, invented what we needed, where we needed, but in general, you know, maybe I'm sort of a, a creative entrepreneur in all this, but I really try to minimize the amount that I innovate and that my team does and instead try to leverage everything we can off the shelf and only innovate where needed. And that's always the smart way to go. I, when I did my own uh, startups, I always tried to only have one hard problem that I personally had to solve or my team had to solve. The rest was basically systems integration, but in an intelligent fashion, but always like to have one ugly problem uh, that gave us a uh, sustainable advantage. Let me go back to drill into your example though one more time, make it, make it clear to myself and hopefully to our audience. Uh, so let's say Toyota has a big body of data from operating a fleet of prototype early self-driving cars and through the ocean protocol, uh, they're able to cut a deal with BMW to have some access to that data and presumably in return for having access to BMW's data. Uh, now some engineers at BMW want to train a or continue to train a model on Toyota's data. How does that actually work? There's uh, a few ways, but the, the, the main uh, way of thinking about this is a new emerging technique called federated learning. And uh, generally speaking, how it works, um, so this idea emerged a few years ago in the sort of centralized computing space where you, you initialize a neural network model with just random weights, like you initialize an AI model with just random parameters. And then um, you say, okay, now we're going to update this model from the data 
of silo A, so maybe all the data from BMW. And then, uh, so you don't send the model there, you just update it, uh, you, you get an update delta record, if you will, that then comes to the model and the model gets updated. And then you go um, you go along to silo B, say that Daimler has, and then you update the model from that. And then you go to silo C and you update the model with that. And you you keep going down the path until you've gone through all the silos and now you've got this model that um, has been trained in all the silos, but none of the silos have seen the model in detail itself. And um, the model itself then um, is trained. Now, this idea of federated learning has been around a few years. It's kind of taken off in some ways in a cool way. And uh, Google, to its credit, has pioneered it, but it has pioneered it in a centralized way. So there's sort of three um, levels of the stack that need to be decentralized. There's the data itself, you know, that needs to stay in the silos or stay on the consumer mobile phone or whatever. There is the orchestration of the training. And there is where the final model resides. So the Google version of this has the data itself sitting in the silos, but Google itself does the orchestration in a centralized way. So it can see all the things that are going on, basically, or has the opportunity to. And the final model as well is controlled by Google. So you can reverse engineer that and yank out PII potentially. What you need to do is you need to have all three decentralized. You need to have the data decentralized, you need to have the orchestration decentralized, and you need to have the final model decentralized. And by doing that, then you can retain um, the private data. So Ocean at its heart, actually, in order to make this happen, um, in unlocking data, to unlock private data, it needs to do this decentralized orchestration, which is basically, think like a compute pipeline, that you know grabs data and then you know cleans the data, then trains the model and stores the model, etc. So step eight, you know one, two, three, four, five, but it oversees those steps in a decentralized substrate. You know instead of having a single um, entity controlling that, and that's critical. Let me drill in one step further, see if I can make it clear to myself and the audience. Uh, let's imagine the BMW guy has created a TensorFlow-based model and is running it against his data. He's done. Now he wants to run that. He wants to improve that model by running it against Toyota's data. How does he actually do that under the Ocean Protocol? He will kick off an overall job that says, you know, learn on this data set, learn on this data set, learn on this data set. And um, the Ocean Protocol itself has, um, you know, middleware software that knows how to connect to each of those data sets and basically run a local Docker container that is um, running locally side by side the BMW data running this container where it's doing the, basically the model update, you know, the, the delta weights, if you will, um, that then once once they're computed, they are sent to the model that is sitting there. Uh, so using Ocean Protocol, basically. And so, you know, you've got this model sitting in this decentralized way. It's It just received the weights from this, this first silo. And um, the weights were computed, orchestrated by Ocean running this local Docker container side by side with the data. Once those um, arrive at the, the model, you have another Docker container running in the in the Daimler uh, in a Docker container running next to the Daimler data, and it computes weights and sends the weight update to the the neural network model itself too, and then it keeps doing that in one silo at a time. You know, BMW, Daimler, GM, Ford, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and in the end, it's got a model that has all the data from all the participating automakers. And does that model then get shared as well, or is that just BMW's model at this point? It depends on the use case. So in the case of autonomous driving data, autonomous vehicles, if there aren't privacy issues for that uh, model, then it would be okay for BMW to control that. But in other cases, if you have a model that is sufficiently high fidelity, then a smart AI engineer will be able to yank out personally identifiable information. 
And you don't want that. It's super dangerous, right? And so how you account for that is the model itself needs to be basically running as its own, essentially a DAO inside this um, decentralized substrate where um, any one entity can only make a few queries from it per day, for example, right? Or whatever is needed. So you, you want to make sure that no one can query enough in order to yank out personally identifiable information. So basically that that's... Um, the way, so just I talked about these three three things you need to decentralize before, the data itself, the orchestration for the training, and the final model. And ideally, you have all three. In some cases, you can get away with having that neural network model held by BMW, for example, but only if it doesn't have the privacy issues. So again, just to drill a little bit more into what's actually happening, let's say the BMW TensorFlow-based model actually gets copied over to the Docker instance at Daimler or Toyota and run there against the data? No, no, it can't because um, if, if, if that was happening, then inside Daimler, if you have a sneaky uh, AI engineer inside Daimler, they could grab the model, reverse engineer it, and, and yank out a bunch of PII that might have come from the BMW data, you see? So the data flows across the ocean protocol from Daimler to BMW? No, so you basically got this model that is getting built that's in the decentralized cloud, right, in, in ocean as sort of its DAO. And it's getting update an update from BMW. It's getting an update from Daimler. It's getting an update from uh, other automakers. But where does it actually run as it's updating its ways? Because as we know, that's computationally intensive and bandwidth intensive to be scanning vast pools of data and updating weights on a potentially gigantic, you know, giga size, uh, you know, neural net. Yeah, yeah. So the the model itself, um, I mean, most of the compute is actually in computing the update part itself right next to the data. So the sort of integrating of those weights into the model itself is much less compute intensive. So if you wanted, you um, there's a few options. One of them is where you have some basically running directly on chain, which is not really very feasible uh, for any real size, to be honest. Another one is where you have some shared substrate that all BMW, Daimler, et cetera, are running together that um, they kind of run as their own DAO or that each of them has one key. And then each of them has set up the rules where um, this model that is being queried, they can query it and no one else. And each of them has rate limiting on that query. So, and in that case, you know, you, you've got keys around this. It would be running on one of their data centers, whether it's BMW data center or otherwise. But in that case, it would be sort of multi-sigged up, you know, um, each of them would have keys to only do certain things. But I still don't quite see how the computation touches the data in a way that's uh, sufficiently tightly coupled that it can be efficient. Right. So are you talking about the training or are you talking about the prediction given a model? So let's say Toyota has 10 terabytes of very low level data from a whole bunch of prototype uh, self-driving cars. And you need to run that very low level data through a, a training protocol, presumably, and that is updating weights continuously, including doing expensive things like calculating gradient descents, et cetera. And, you know, trying to do that over a wire seems highly unfeasible. Oh, yeah, no, you, you're not doing it over a wire. So um, maybe I wasn't clear on that. Where does the data and the compute uh, reside within the same, uh, at worst, data center, but better still, uh, the same uh, tightly coupled cluster? 
That's exactly it. You know, inside the data center, inside the cluster, I, right next to each other, right? So they're talking to each other, not even over the network at all, right? They're, they, um, there's memory that they're sharing on the same machines and so on, right? And this is actually happening today already, right? So like there's a version of TensorFlow that is the federated version, you know, TensorFlow federated, and it already offers these options. So, and the versions of Ocean with federated learning that we're moving towards is leveraging the, the TensorFlow technology, but then pulling it in the other levels of decentralization at the level of orchestration so that um, you don't have man-in-the-middle attacks there and at the level of the final model itself so that you can't have PII, personal private information, yanked out of that final model. Does it also provide control so that if all the parties agree, BMW's model is owned by BMW. So they can, and again, you say the model has to go over to Daimler to run against the Daimler data. So presumably you need some very powerful security to keep Daimler from grabbing the uh, model while it's in their data center. No, no, the model doesn't need to go to Daimler. So um, the model sitting um, basically to compute these updates with gradient descent and stuff, um, the heavy compute, each of those is done, you know, the, the compute next to the data itself. So heavy compute next to BMW data. And the result of that is a weight update that goes to this model sitting in the, in the decentralized cloud, similar for Daimler. But what's not happening, the model is not coming from the cloud down to Daimler at all. So there's no risk that way of the BMW data, you know, getting in the hands of, of the Daimler in that way. So you have to have the network, though, to calculate uh, the deltas, right? You know, the neural network has to exist close to the data. The deltas are basically the way that federated learning is. You don't need to take the, the, the previous, like you could do all the, the weight updates. You can compute them all simultaneously if you really want. I just describe it where it's serially because it's easier to kind of understand conceptually as humans. Okay. Uh, I guess I'm going to have to go look into this. This is, uh, you know, I was using TensorFlow about three years ago, but I haven't looked at it since. So I got to go back and learn about federated TensorFlow, it looks like. Sure. And to be clear, you know, there's there's the federated TensorFlow, but then on top of that, um, you have to decentralize not just the level of the data, but also the level of the orchestration and the final model, right? So that's the key distinction. Yeah, I understand that. But I know at the end of the day, you still have to get two things close to each other or it ain't going to scale, right? You got you got to get the the delta calculation from the training set into a updated model close, very close to each other in technology time space. You know, you, know, you and I know exactly what we're talking about. It's kind of hard to communicate this to everybody else, but you know, this is of which I am the most extreme zealot that I always make have to make sure uh, that people haven't made a fundamental non-scalable architectural uh, decision. Absolutely. You know, I, I think, you know, there's, I mean, you, you and I probably had this conversation, but one thing we are very proud of from Salido days, at the heart of Salido, we were doing rare event estimation as one of the products, um, you know, calculating, is this circuit a one in a billion chance of failure versus 1.1 in a billion? And of course, then to do that, um, you have to draw potentially millions or billions or tens of billions of Monte Carlo samples. And we had got things so close to the hardware level that we are drawing 1 million Monte Carlo samples per second on one core. <laughs> These are the sorts of things that get me very excited too, hence many conversations and same thing in the model training, right? Let me ask another question. This is one that comes from my long career of dealing with data-based products in my own companies and at Thomson Reuters, et cetera, uh, which was what we called back in the day, the ontology problem, right? Let's stick with our example of self-driving cars. Uh, the way Toyota may have 
structured the description of the low-level data about the operation of their self-driving car may be incommensurable with the way BMW did. You know, they may call things, not only just call the same thing different names, but divide the space of measurements up in ways that aren't commensurable. How do you deal with that problem? Yeah, it's a great question. There's a few ways, depending on the particular um, market, if you will. If you are a vendor selling data and your data format is incompatible with everyone else, no one will buy your stuff. So you're incentivized to get your data in a format that everyone agrees with. For sort of emerging problems like the AV training, um, this is where things like the Mobi working groups are very useful. Mobi is this mobility consortium. So there's a working group on autonomous vehicles driving data and they work together um, and come up with, you know, the different variables that they want to point to, what order they're in and so on. Right. And in general, you know, this is the question of standards. How do standards get set? And there's, other, you know, traditionally there's a few ways. There's the top down way where a company says this is the way it is, you know, like Apple saying here is Firewire, use it or not. But you can also go bottom up where a group of engineers work, representing various companies come up with a protocol and then it gets deployed. And this is things like Bluetooth uh, and Wi-Fi, for example, where it's, you know, their IEEE standards that get developed by working groups over a number of years. So I see the same thing here. At the end of the day, um, the standards that get used a lot are the ones that win in the market. Maybe that's a truism, but yeah, that's how it is. So in this case, again, I want to try to keep it uh, on the same example. Uh, Moby may get agreement from a number of car companies to structure the low-level data that's being spun out from their self-driving cars into a standard format that they all agree to use. And sometimes there can be competing formats, right? You know, like a PhD student and a professor out of UCLA came up with a protocol to connect a network of networks. And, you know, the governments ignored that and decided to come up with their own. And the government one was, you know, many European nations and so on. They called it OSI. But the PhD student uh, and the supervisor, um, Ben Surf and Bob Kahn, they invented TCP IP and it was running and it was working. So in this case, two competing standards. And uh, basically the, the, the one that was working one, right? It was also a few years earlier. But overall, you know, that's a nice example of two completely different approaches to development or, uh, of a standard or a protocol. And uh, one of them emerging as the, as the winner. That's funny. I have actually a talk about that exact issue, how uh, TCIP beat OSI. So uh, just, you know, just to be tangible in this automotive uh, automatic driving space, uh, has Moby been able to get the various manufacturers to agree on a shared ontology of how the low level events are described? No, they're moving towards that. And, you know, they have clout in the sense that they represent 80% of the world's auto production. And, you know, they have regular meetings. Uh, each of the working groups has regular meetings and so on. So to my knowledge, there has been the meetings continue in, in the last couple of months. I, I've seen things happening that way. So even just for the autonomous vehicles. But who knows? Maybe there will be some company X that comes along that says, here's our autonomous vehicles. Here's the standard for everyone follow or you're, you're left in the dust. So at the end of the day, it's what's successful in the market. I do know for sure that these ontology problems are tricky and uh, subtle. And if you don't solve them, the shit don't work. Actually, one that we encountered was, uh, you know, when we were doing IP in the blockchain with this project called Describe, we had developed our own protocol at first of, you know, how, how do you uh, license art? How, how do you, you know, how does someone claim copyright? How does someone transfer rights of a limited edition? All of this. 
And uh, we, we did a first cut, but then people said, okay, I want to slice and dice this to many different uh, owners or many different jurisdictions or time bound and so on. So we went back and we looked at, you know, what does the music industry do? What does the photography industry do, et cetera, et cetera. And in the end, there had been some protocols developed out of London about seven years before that um, weren't quite ready for blockchain, but we tweaked them and, and made them ready. And that, that was very nice. So um, sometimes there, you know, you just have to dust off some great ideas that people came up with five or 15 years ago. Absolutely. We talked a pretty good example about people who have lots of data and want to do something with it, perhaps cooperatively with the uh, automotive company example. Uh, let's talk the other side of uh, the big picture that you drew earlier, which is some folks say who have some wonderful AI technology that they want to be able to essentially sell as a service across data to various customers. How would that look on the Ocean Protocol? So Ocean, at the end of the day, it's designed, you know, it's hard to this decentralized orchestration, which is sort of these, you know, AI compute pipelines. And then services get fed into these AI compute pipelines. And these services are services that provide data or services that provide compute. The services that provide compute can be manifesting um, AI algorithms. So that would be Awe, where someone is providing a service where they've got their own even black box AI algorithm. Another way where is where, um, let's say you're a PhD student or you're a startup and you've de developed some fancy AI algorithm, you can actually su supply that as data in sort of this way with provenance uh, security and so on. And then other people could be um, using that to be running with their, their own compute. We will see, I think there's quite a few possible ways that this can emerge, but at the heart of the ocean protocol is for these pipelines. And there's quite a few yeah, directions that the ecosystem could emerge this way. And to give a feel, right, these services feeding in, the data side, they can be from behind silos. They can be from the, the, the centralized web, things like Amazon S3, or they can be from the decentralized web, things like storage or, or Filecoin. Um, and same thing for the for the compute, right? Um, it can be behind firewalls, um, you know, Docker containers running in BMW data centers. It can be centralized cloud like Amazon EC2, or it can be decentralized cloud like Golem or specializations. So Singularity Net is a wonderful example of decentralized compute with a real focus on AI compute and and the supplying the AI algorithms themselves. So and that's where there's a very nice interplay um, between Ocean and Singularity Net. Yeah, so that was my next question. You know, these spaces are partially adjacent, partially overlapping, partially hierarchical. How would you compare and contrast Ocean to Singularity Net? Maybe as a preface, you know, Ben and I have known each other for years, been friends for years, and he's officially an advisor to Ocean. I'm officially an advisor to Singularity Net. So that kind of lays the groundwork that there's, you know, we're just bound to be cooperating. And in fact, we are. Both Ocean and Singularity Net are platforms in a sense, but also with aims to have applications running on top of them. Singularity Net uh, has more of a bias towards AI algorithms uh, running, um, agents running, AGI, this sort of thing. Ocean has more of a bias towards unlocking data and supporting these compute pipelines. So Singularity Net will be plugging into Ocean and supplying compute and algorithms. And similarly, Ocean will be plugging into Singularity Net to provide data. And so, you know, you can have either one on top and either one below. Um, but probably the, the healthiest way and most useful is simply to think of them as side by side, feeding each other. Seems like that makes a lot of sense to me and should help both. And uh, since, you know, I've been close with both Ben and with you, I hope to see you guys work very cooperatively. I'm glad to see that you're uh, that you're both working together in a nice way. That's all good. Now let's switch to a little bit different level. We talked earlier about governance and how these new public ledger and smart contract DAOs allow new models of governance. How's Ocean governed? 
Eventually, Ocean will be a public utility network that is fully permissionless and the code will have stabilized such that it won't need any change or anything. And in that case, it will just be this autonomous thing. And asking how Ocean is governed, it would be like asking how the air around us is governed or, or the wind or the soil or, or, or anything. And there can be a degree of governance. But so that, that's kind of the ideal, right? Where we want to get to. And of course, that means also it's permissionless and censorship resistant and all this. That's where we're headed, but it's going to take a long time to get there. And in the words of one of your, you know, previous colleagues, David Holtzman, who had helped architect the, the, the modern DNS, bake slowly. <laughs> and this is, you know, a maxim that David has repeated to me many times, bake slowly, bake slowly, bake slowly. And in the context of rolling out ocean or decentralized networks, what this means is um, you start with uh, something that has centralized control and um, bit by bit by bit you decentralize as the system stabilizes and so on. And you try, while you're um, doing this, you try to make it so that people don't have to trust you very much either. So it doesn't have to be where like the final uh, final step, I remove all my keys, but up to then I've got full control. It's not that. And so it's, it's about giving up control bit by bit by bit as well. And so Ocean right now um, we are running it as an authority-based network, a federated network, um, mostly with big chain DB nodes. And within uh, hopefully a year, maybe sooner, we will be uh, running on a fully permissionless substrate such that anyone can be you know, a validator on that. And then, so that's sort of the, the lower level, the, the substrate that runs the smart contracts, the ocean smart contracts. And you know, we would be running, we'd be happily running on say Ethereum right now um, if Ethereum was fully scalable, but it's not fully scalable and we need the scale. Um, and we've written about that too. So that's the lower level. The higher level, uh, what governance comes down to at the end of the day is how does the software itself get upgraded, right? And every other sort of governance discussion um, basically falls back into that. How does the software itself get upgraded? And so how it is right now, there's sort of two parts of the ocean system. One part is the the smart contract, the the code of the number of ocean tokens. And that has no, that's basically hardwired. And in fact, it's sitting on Ethereum and we have a bridge. So it's very, very hard for us to change or touch. You'd have to do a hard fork, which is a whole other story. And then the rest of the ocean system, though, we actually have it set up where there's basically version control software such that, you know, if we find a bug, then the team can go in and update the code um, using basically M of N uh, signatures, this so-called multi-sig. So three of five people need to agree that the code does need that upgrade. So then they do the upgrade and suddenly the code is upgraded. But as time goes on, um, you know, towards this final ideal where it's this public utility that no one can own or control at all, then um, we will uh, remove all the keys, all ability to upgrade at all. And the only way that you can change it after that is with a hard fork. And a hard fork is a form of governance too, you know. By example, for maybe for your audience, um, you know, when Bitcoin... It's only form of governance is hard forks, where if you want to upgrade the Bitcoin protocol, you basically create new software, you start running your nodes, um, where those nodes copy over the state from the existing Bitcoin, and you try to convince everyone else that's running Bitcoin nodes to run your new nodes, to run your software. And if you convince enough of them, or if you convince all of them, then you've successfully um, you know, executed the hard fork. Sometimes, maybe you can only convince half, and then there's a truly a fork. You know, you've got your system, and you've got the p- previous people who prefer the old way. And and, um, you know, that's okay that you have two communities, each has its own philosophy of how things should go forward. That's completely healthy. So fork away. But a hard fork, you know, while it's a form of governance, it's very painful to execute because it just sort of logistics and so on. So you can't do it very often, you know, maybe every three months or every six months. And if you have a very young system that has potentially a lot of bugs and you want to be able to change them quickly, you want a faster way to upgrade that. And that's really what this on contract software upgrade mechanism is that Ocean has. 
Interesting. Now, are you going to be fully off? In fact, are you now uh, fully open source? And uh, do you intend or if, and if you're not, uh, do you intend to be? Uh, we are fully open source with an Apache 2 license, which means that there are very few restrictions on it. So in other words, if someone did want to take what you have and do a hard fork, they could ju- they're free to go ahead and do that. Yeah, I mean, they could deploy their own system of Ocean tomorrow, right? And then modify it and, and go along their merry way, right? And as we know, that's happened with Bitcoin. How many uh, forks have there been of Bitcoin? A lot have been attempted. And what about four or five actually have a little bit of validity uh, going on with them? For sure. And, you know, some other systems, they do a hard fork, but they modify the code a lot and start from scratch. This is things like Litecoin, which is a modification of Bitcoin or Zcash also, but they really go in their own direction, right? But then um, there's other modifications of the Bitcoin system that retain the state and try to have just very small changes. So yeah, there's like Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin SV and many, many more. And what's interesting though, you know, if you, if you rewind two or three years, there is a big fight or big fights in the, in the Bitcoin community. Bitcoin should go in direction X, Bitcoin should go direction Y, direction Z. But what's happened over the last two or three years, each of those different philosophies is now embodied in its own chain. Uh, you know, say, so Bitcoin itself is the biggest, but there's maybe three or four others that are each worth, say, a billion dollars. Yep, exactly. That was the example I was thinking of. The Ocean Protocol has its own token, the Ocean Token. What role does the Ocean Token serve and how is it linked back to governance, if at all? Those are great questions. So overall, um, it, ser- it serves a few roles. First of all, it's a unit of exchange. So when you're buying and selling data sets uh, with Ocean, then inside the, the smart contracts itself, you are, are, are buying and selling with Ocean Tokens. There can be uh, last mile marketplaces th- where people can buy and sell with, say, US dollars, and then it just does convert from US dollars to ocean and that's completely okay too so that's the starting point but if you had just that then there would be no point of an ocean token because you could just have some like coin that is a representation of the US dollar like die or something so you, there has to be uh, other reasons to have a token and the core reason for ocean to have a token comes back to this objective function that I mentioned before, which is we want the ocean network to maximize the supply of relevant data. This is uh, open commons data. So, you know, we want there to be millions, even potentially billions eventually of data sets in, inside the ocean network. And so how we set it up is where it uses uh, the mechanism of inflation. So whenever people submit data sets to ocean and other people download those, then the person who supplied the data set and has sort of put some stake in as well, they're going to expect ocean tokens. They'll get rewarded with ocean tokens in, in a sort of pro- probabilistic way, right? Their chance of earning ocean tokens goes up the more that uh, the more useful data sets they supply. So that's kind of um, the key way. And that's really um, around this one way of unlocking data, right? Really driving towards the uh, incentivizing uh, this commons data. And, you know, the token plays two roles there, not only in being paid in ocean tokens, but also you need to stake in ocean tokens. The more you stake, the better, the, the more you get paid. And that, uh, that on its own kind of drives things. And uh, really for the other parts, uh, those are basically also uh, as price data marketplaces come on board, then they will have staking mechanics too uh, with ocean tokens. Um, so if I'm buying a data set, I might get a discount if I hold a certain amount of ocean tokens. And this is a common mechanic that you see across uh, many um, other blockchain systems too. So interesting, the amazing amount of creativity that can brought to the fore by combining those elements that we talked uh, about first, you know, the idea of public ledger and tokens, smart contracts and DAOs. It allows a master builder like yourself to create something that's never been thought of before. 
Absolutely. And actually, like as a quick aside, um, you know, when we started designing Ocean, uh, it felt like we were, at, you know, after I started iterating on it for a few months, I'm like, when do I know when I'm done the design, the token design? And um, I, I really realized that I had been flailing. So I started to sit down and I said, I'm, I realized that if I cast the problem as one of design of an optimizer, then I lay out the objectives, I lay out the constraints. I have a set of um, design patterns or building blocks that I can work with. And basically, once I have hit all my objectives and constraints, I've got a pretty good first cut design. So I actually followed that approach. And very quickly, within a matter of days, I actually arrived at a first cut design and then refined it and iterated more with colleagues and so on. And when I wrote about that, basically, I started to call it token engineering. And that has sort of uh, emerged as sort of a new, essentially, discipline of engineering. It's very, very young. But this sort of pragmatic set of techniques where you've got a set of building blocks that you use to construct your system and an emerging set of tools to leverage those building blocks, a sense of ethics, a sense of, uh, and a degree of theory. Um, you know, that's really the, the seeds for a new engineering discipline. So um, it's really exciting to sort of help to, to spark that movement. That's great. And we are out in this brave new world where you can do that. Anyone who has the talent and the commitment and the drive can create something as amazingly intricate as Ocean by brute force. Yeah, brute force. Um, but uh, even better than brute force, though, is simply leveraging, you know, the building blocks that have emerged in, in, in the token I, in token engineering. So things like, um, you know, there's something called a TCR, which is where you have a curated list of, of items. And there's other building blocks for curation. There's building blocks for governance. There's building blocks for staking, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then you can, you know, compose these in various ways um, without having to reinvent the wheel each time. And that's very, very useful. Yeah, even better. I mean, uh, Brian Arthur, one of our Santa Fe Institute uh, people whose book on technology is underappreciated, talks about how, you know, most technology uh, development is combining what's already there in a new way that somebody hadn't seen before. Absolutely. Indeed. Okay. Uh, I looked briefly at how the ocean coin was doing, and it seemed to be tracking Bitcoin very, very closely, which I presume is good. I look at the price of Bitcoin now and then, you know, once a week, once every two weeks, same thing with Ocean. It's very tough to sort of model um, exactly how the dynamics of, of the crypto market work. Um, there's some macro trends. Ultimately, uh, how I see it, if, as we continue to build value into the Ocean network and, and the users, then it will drive the value of the Ocean token and there will be this positive snowball um, effect that happens, bringing more people into the ecosystem, having a bigger impact, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really, you know, leveraging the exponentials. If it tracks Bitcoin, I'm sure Sure. Uh, I I don't know why it would, but there's probably a good explanation. Yeah, well, actually, my hypothesis when I saw that, but take a look at the two, do a side by side. You'll see it's remarkable how closely it tracks it. And I presume it's that the world at this point is not made a strong opinion about Ocean, but has concluded that Ocean is probably a good thing. Therefore, it'll track remarkably closely with the big kahuna BTC. And of course, that's much better than your typical ICO, which, you know, starts high and goes low, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. So um, I think, you know, it, there's pros and cons of having a, a token that's out there um, public, but it, it's honest in a sense, right? So, and now there is sort of a, a proxy for success overall. Um, maybe it's uh, not correlated with um, the, the future promise. Uh, but over time, uh, depending on sort of the token mechanics you have, you know, the value will come. 
So I got a few more things on my uh, question list, but I think we're pretty much out of time. I'd love to have you back on to, you know, get an update on how Ocean's going and maybe jump into some of these other technologies. But I think this is the place to wrap it up. Uh, I hope our audience has taken a very rapid uh, ride through the whole stack of uh, blockchain, uh, smart contracts, and DAO, and an example in the form of the Ocean Protocol, and has learned what a uh, brave new world we're living in here. Thank you very much for having me. It was a very fun conversation and I, I appreciate the, the depth of the questions. Yeah, I really enjoyed the discussion as I always do when I speak with Trent. There's very few people I know that I can have a deeper conversation with and this has been one of them. Well, thank you, Jim. Production services and audio editing by Stanton Media Lab. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com. 